Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Now, this is our Christmas at Grace season. It's a fun time, and we're looking at a series about Messiah, the promised one. And I've been feeling that whole Christmas spirit a lot lately, um, probably since Thanksgiving on. What, you know, just I feel like a, a small child longing for my Christmas gift to come, you know, and uh, with great expectation that I would get um, this, this cordless drill is what it comes down to, <laughs> if you must know. And my other one, the batteries die. It's pretty much good for nothing. You can't even drive a nail with it. And so it's, I, I just, I, I, feel like I can't wait till Christmas. It's not like I have hope, okay? I don't need hope that I'll get this lithium-ion battery with uh, an accompanying, uh, you know, uh, what's the other thing called? What's that called? Impact driver. It comes with an impact driver, apparently. Yeah, okay, because I need one of those, too. But I don't, I don't even have to hope for it because it's at my house. It's in my garage. I already bought it. I bought it last Friday. And, and it's just going to sit there. I have to wait 19 days before I'll plug it in and take this thing for a run. But I, just, I, I, felt, I thought to myself, this, this is the Christmas experience, isn't it? Where you get what you want ahead of time, and then it's, it's all about that. And that's nothing like the Christmas spirit. It is not even remotely similar to the real Christmas experience. And I, what I... When you, when you think about that little, my little story with my cordless drill, which is a true story, and you, th- and you think about the true story of, of the coming of the Messiah, the promised one, th- you, here's what real Christmas faith is. First of all, it requires a considerable amount of faith, believing in something that you can't see, and, you, and you're convinced of that. It, it means that uh, Chris, the Christmas story, the historic Christmas story, it causes you to change lenses on your camera and not so selfie-focused lens, but this panoramic lens that says, wow, there's a lot more going on in the world, and this promise is for, for bigger things than just me and my little drill. Right? And, and then there's uh, this other sense of, of patience, not, you know, waiting two days. I got a two-day delivery, and I'm still waiting at the front porch, but thousands of years. Just let's stop and pause before we move on. Think about real faith, the real thing that people for thousands of years were required to have it, when it comes to the Messiah. Messiah means the anointed one, the promised one. And God gave promises throughout the Old Testament, and, and as he did, it became more clear. Okay? It was progressively more clear. But what he told Abraham and Moses and Ruth and David they still had to believe in something that they didn't see. And they had to be convinced of it. Here's the biblical definition. This is literally the Bible's definition of faith. Okay? It, it is the, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, and it's the conviction or the certainty of things that they don't see. And so, I, I, you know, tongue-in-cheek, I don't need faith for my cordless drill. I have touched it. I have seen it. I have smelled it. Oh, it exists. But these men, true faith is when you believe something to be true and you have a conviction of something independent of your feelings. Because God said so, in completely isolated from the circumstances around you and, and the amount of circumstances around you. A person of faith says, I still believe what God said about the promised one. 
and that he's coming and what he'll do. It's independence of how long I have to wait for that. Again, thousands of years, hundreds of years. I might not ever see it. Okay. Real faith is, it takes the focus off of ourselves. The biblical faith, it's, we're not the center of the universe, but what is, is this God's unveiling plan of human reconciliation, righteousness, and his final judgment. So the promise, the promised one, Messiah, right, the anointed one, it's a promise not for a person, it's a promise, it's towards a person, but it's a promise for mankind and for all of eternity. It's so much bigger. And when we make it about us and we, if we, we don't change that lens on the camera, we're missing what true biblical faith is. And so not only is it significantly you know, faith and trust based in things we don't see, but also it's, it's bigger, but it's also, it's longer. It's generational long. It's like, look at these people, Abraham and Moses and Ruth and David, and they, we just go on and on, but they waited and they believed until their dying breath, they believed the promises of God, but they didn't need God to meet their deadlines for God to be true. And that's, that's why it says in Hebrews 11, this is this chapter that defines faith for us. In Hebrews 11, verse 13, it says, now all these people, all these saints of old, they were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things that were promised. Nope, not in this lifetime. They only saw them and welcomed them from a great distance through the, wow, way out there, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on this earth. It is a very long road to a cave in Bethlehem. And statistically speaking, I mean, you, you couldn't analyze the data to find out what the percentage of people that were actually experiencing the fulfillment of the promise of the Messiah. Think of the tens of the millions of people that had to look off and say, this is not my home. And it's not going to, this promise will be fulfilled, but not in these short 60, 70 years. And God is still true, and he still fulfills his promises, and he, he does what he says he'll do. In our times together leading up to Christmas Eve, I thought this year it would be interesting to look at one of the darker times, the, the more depressing, the, the quieter times of faith when you look at the Bible history. And we're going to look at these, this, this era of time and say, okay, how did they practice this thing that we're calling real faith, the real Christmas faith that, is, that believes with a conviction of things that they don't see? Right, that's, that's more global in its uh, consequence and that could take longer than their own experience. Right? They're going to be patient with this. So here's what I thought we'd do. Let's look at what's called the 400 silent years. Here it is on a time chart, and we, kinda, we know of the 400 silent years between the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. He's the last Old Testament prophet in that book, and then the, the first or actually the last Old Testament prophet is a gentleman named John the Baptist. He's still Old Testament. But there's a 400-year gap between Malachi and when John the Baptist announces the coming of the Messiah. In that 400 years, it's often called the 400 silent years because it's during that period of time that God didn't speak in a revelatory way through a prophet. There were not uh, angelic uh, visitations. There, there, it, it was, right, it was... At Malachi, they turned their back on God for the last time, and God said, I'll, I'll just wait. 
Now, during that period of time, a lot was happening. God was moving. He was moving pieces across the board and, and doing what he does. And we know some of these famous philosophers and certainly world leaders. One notably is Alexander Alexander the Great. You know that story, the 20-year-old, 19, and, and within a few years, he, he conquers what would be Europe and India and Asia. He dies a premature death in his early 40s and leaves his generals in charge for basic right, states. The one that is most dominating is uh, Seleucid, and there's a map of that. Let me show you where that is, and, and particularly where Israel is. It's right in the middle. The green is the Seleucid uh, Empire, and Israel's right there in the middle. And for 200 years or so, Israel's just getting... It's like a leaf getting blown back and forth. It, the real estate of, of Israel is extremely strategic. It is some of the most strategic land in all of the world. And so people will be, various empires will be trying to dominate this, and they'll use Israel as a means of getting from place to place. And, but during this time, it's mostly pluralistic. And so uh, the God-fearing Jews could still live a life committed to the Lord and living by faith that his promises were still true regardless of who was in charge and who was, which flag was flying uh, over, their, over their city-states. And they were able to practice this, this promise of a coming global judgment and a resurrection from the dead. And then everything changed. In other words, they were living in, in various countries overarching power but in a pluralistic way so they could still be faithful Jews. And then... <laughs> And then a, a man comes along and puts, puts a darkness and an evil on Israel like she hadn't had but a few times in her whole experience. To fully appreciate this madman, I wanted to ask a friend who's somewhat of an expert in this area to come up and join me. You guys know Carol Cummings. Some of you do. Carol, why don't you come on up? Carol uh, teaches here. Hi. Carol teaches at Grace a lot. She went to, uh, that's, where is that school at? Texas A&M, that's what it was, right? <laughs> yep. While she was an undergrad there, she translated the New Testament from Greek to English. She uh, went to seminary after that. She joined us in 2004. She loves everything Jewish, and that's why she's here. She loves everything Jewish. She loves the people, the culture, uh, the, the land. She's been to Israel five times, practically led the tour when I went with you. <laughs> Uh, she uh, teaches at the University of Texas in some of the Jewish studies classes. Here at Grace, she helps oversee the core curriculum in our adult discipleship community, uh, most notably the Old Testament and New Testament survey, uh, doing the disciplines of the faith. And this fall, she'll be teaching, is it New Testament survey? Yeah, in the spring, yeah, starting in January. In the spring, starting in January, she'll be teaching with other people the New Testament survey. One of her uh, more famous classes that people like a lot is her feasts, her survey of the feasts of the Older Testament. Today we're looking at one of the feasts. That's why I wanted you to come you, and help me explain how to live by faith in this intertestamental period of time. And particularly, you brought a prop for us. Yes. That oh, wait, you know what? You work too. I don't want anybody to think you... <laughs> Yeah, I have a day job. You have a job, right? <laughs> uh, so I'm a traveling salesperson. I uh, provide the company for which I work is Right Management. We provide uh, HR-related consulting services. I focus predominantly on the Fortune 500, so I spend a lot of time on the road. Good. And you're here today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Great. I'm glad to be here. And um, let me say happy Hanukkah to you. And I'd also like to say happy Hanukkah to all of you. Today is the first day 
of Hanukkah, which is actually called, it's a feast. It's the Feast of Dedication. Feast of Dedication. What does that mean? And how does that relate to Christmas yeah. in our experience? So, uh, surprisingly for a lot of uh, Christians, Hanukkah literally is going to set the stage for the coming of Jesus into the world. Uh, in addition to that, there are pieces of the Hanukkah story that literally are going to fulfill what some of these Old Testament prophets had to say. But it also, going back to Matt's comments about these saints of old who were longing for Messiah, the feast, Hanukkah, is literally going to be one of those anchors that they're going to hold themselves to until Messiah appears. Um, but for us to kind of get more into the story, um, I got to kind of back up. And as is normally the case in Judaism, our story really starts with a pig. So, um, so prepare yourselves. <laughs> Matt mentioned uh, this very dark uh, emperor. His name is Antiochus IV, and he's going to rise to power over the Seleucids in 167 B.C. To describe him appropriately, let's just call him a megalomaniac. Um, he's harsh, he's cruel, and he actually believes that he is a god. So this is where the game begins to change for the Jews because Antiochus decrees that everyone across the Seleucid Empire has to worship him. Well, for any of us who know our Old Testament, and in particular Moses in the Exodus account, we know that the number one rule on the list of ten <laughs> that they were given by Moses is the commandment that you shall worship no other gods before me, worship God alone. So the Jewish people, they resist. They won't do what Antiochus is demanding. He then comes into Jerusalem, and he is going to expend his wrath. So he breaches the walls of the city, he burns down the homes, and in the most PG version possible, he kills between 10 and 20,000 Jewish people as well as enslaving them on the Seleucid imperial slave trade. And then he turns and he faces the temple. Now let's remember that in Judaism, the temple is literally the place of worship for all of the Jewish people. So asking them to, to worship him is strike one, but now he's going to go up on the temple because he wants to make his plans and his demands enforced and known by the people. So he and his general go up to the Temple Mount, and they begin to crack. They shatter the porches, the columns, the gates. They go into the two rooms, if you know the structure of the temple. They go into the holy room, and they go into the holy of holies. And they ransack it. They take the menorah. They take the showbread table and all of the golden vessels. And as they're leaving, as if that's not enough, Antiochus then looks at the bronze basin. Now, if you remember, within Judaism, as prescribed to the Israelites by God to Moses, this is a sacrificial system. So the bronze basin is intended to be there so that they can make the necessary animal sacrifices that please the Lord. Antiochus decides to erect a statue of Zeus and place it on the altar. The only difference is that he actually puts his face on the statue. So this is strike two, because again, if you know your Ten Commandments, number two, have no graven images or idols. 
So things are only going to get worse. Coming up is Zeus's birthday. Antiochus personally goes up on the Temple Mount, and he brings a pig. And to celebrate Zeus's birthday, he sacrifices the pig on the altar. He then takes the blood of the pig, and he goes into the temple, and like graffiti, he sprays the blood all over the holy room, the holy of holies, the Torah scrolls, which he then tears apart and burns. Now, if you don't know anything else, <laughs> if you have friends who are Jewish, you know that they don't eat pork. This is, again, prescribed by God. This is strike three. Not only did God say pigs are unclean and don't sacrifice them, but you don't eat them, you don't touch them. So at this point, you've got to understand the temple has been completely desecrated. It's been utterly compromised. And we're going to talk in a minute about one particular family that this directly affects, because going all the way back to Moses and his brother Aaron, Aaron and all of his descendants, which are called the tribe of Levi, they're responsible for the worship at the temple. Their very purpose for being has just been completely and utterly demolished. Now, you would think that his wrath would be satisfied at this point, but for Antiochus, it's not. He then turns his attention on the Jewish people. He decrees that any observance or practice of Judaism is capital punishment. And he takes the soldiers like Nazi stormtroopers. They tear down the walls and house arrest begins. They're going into people's homes and I want you to imagine you're a Jewish mother. It's Friday night and you put out your Sabbath candles. They take the candles and they kill your family. You have your eight-day-year-old son. He's to be circumcised. It's being observed. They kill the family. So going back to Matt's, these are people who believe in the promises of God so much so that they are being observant. They're doing what God has called them to do for, at this point, 1,500 years. And now they're martyrs. Many of them flee from the area of Jerusalem into what we call the Judean hills, and they are literally hiding out in caves like animals. Right, and this is a remnant group of people that say, independent of what the government says about what, whether they can practice their faith or not, they will practice the, the laws of Moses. And, and you, to grasp, it's very difficult. Both of us are having to withhold the truth of the violence of this man and the hatred that he had in his methods of torture that would be so convincing to people to say it's not worth it. Just, there, and there's a, I wanted to tell a story of one of the remnants, uh, and, and you can look it up online. This is not for bedtime reading, but it is a rather famous story of Hannah and her seven sons. And in H Hannah's case, she was found out, and Antiochus set up a, a place to visualize all of this taking place, and the, the boys were all circumcised boys. They were young men. The youngest was preteen. And Hannah was placed in a, a position so she could watch all of this happen. And one by one, he tortured them to death without going into details, but it's disgusting and grotesque. And each one, though, when you read it, would you please be listening for what real faith is? Because real, they all have the, the last word. And their last words are, they're going to believe in God's promises independent of, of the circumstances or their feelings. And they're going to believe, this is where the idea of a resurrection starts really uh, gaining ground. And they're going to believe in the resurrection of the dead and final judgment for all mankind. And each one of, the, each one of these men will say this before they're, 
before they're finally extinguished. And one of them, let me give you uh, son number six, I think this is. He says this to Antiochus. He's sitting there on his throne. He says, do not suppose, and listen to that, their view of God, by the way. In light of all of this, they still view God right, as a loving God and some of the difficulties they're having, they're taking... He's taking responsibility for it. He says, do not suppose that God has handed us over to you so that you might be exalted or that he hates us. It's because he loves us and he has granted us the honor to die in such a way. But God will take out his vengeance upon you and your children. When six of the boy, the young men have been killed, the, the last son, the seventh son is young and and Antiochus is, is looking at, if nothing else, a waste. And so he appeals to the young man by bribing him and saying, I will give you great wealth of silver and gold, and if that's not enough, I'll give you position, please. All you have to do, this is all they, all you had to do is just place your tongue on this pork and we'll let you live free. And, and he wouldn't do it. And so Antiochus turns to the mother and says, Hannah, this is your last son. You would have a remaining heir. Would you talk to him? And she's worn down by Antiochus. And he, so she says, I will do what I can. And then it says, in her native tongue. So the king is watching, but he can't understand. This is what she says to her youngest son. Son, have pity on me. I have carried you in my womb for nine months and nursed you for three years and nurtured you, and I brought you into this stage of life with care. And now I beg you, child, I beg you to look at heaven and earth and see everything in them. And you know this, that God made these things and he created mankind in the same way, out of nothing. Do not fear this killer, but prove yourself worthy of your brothers. Accept this death so that God's mercy should shine upon you, and you will recover in the resurrection, as will your brothers. He heard that in his tongue and then said this, What are we waiting for? I have no intention of taking the king's order. I will only do the commands of the law that were given to me and my ancestors through Moses. You, you, O king, who have invented all sorts of evil against the Hebrews, will by no means escape God's power or judgment. 12-year-old, we are suffering because of our sins. If our living Lord is angry with us for this short time in order to rebuke us and discipline us, that's good, and he will again be reconciled with our saints. That's believing in things you don't see. But you, O holy man, most bloodstained of all people, you haven't escaped the judgment of God, almighty God who oversees all of us. And now our brothers who endured pain for this short time have been given eternal life under God's covenant and you will suffer the penalty for your arrogance by the righteous judgment of God. I will be resurrected with my brothers. You will be condemned. With that he died. And his mother Hannah, she died too, an honorable death. They never saw the promises fulfilled, but they never stopped believing them. That's why in Hebrews chapter 11, this chapter all about faith, look what it says about Hannah in many respects, not specifically, but Hannah and her sons. This is what it says. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. <laughs> 
this was not the first Holocaust, and this would not be the last, but this is how a person, a remnant, this, this group of people that says, it doesn't matter what's happening around us, we will serve the Lord. I just wanted to give you a picture of what it was like then, and then and let's tell the rest of the story. How, please, by all means, how does, how does it end? So the surviving members of the remnant um, are led by a man by the name of Judas. Some of you all know this story. Uh, he is one of these Levites, but the family name is Hasmonea. Judas has a band of brothers, and they begin a revolt against the Seleucid Empire. It's guerrilla warfare tactics at their finest. He's a great military strategist, and they begin to take out the Syrian strongholds of the Seleucids. And this is going to go on for almost three years, and they're successfully pushing back on the Seleucids. And then an interesting thing happens in 164 BC. On the western outskirts of the Seleucid Empire, there's a little upstart group called the Romans. And they've decided that they are tired of being under Seleucid occupation. So Antiochus and his general and soldiers retreat, and they're headed for Rome. And to Matt's point with the story of Hannah and her son and the judgment that they pronounce over Antiochus, historians agree, we don't know why, but in some mysterious way, Antiochus dies on the way to Italy. What's amazing about this is that we're talking about 164 BC, and Judas and all of his band of brothers realize they have a victory. They also now have self-rule. The Jews are no longer under any kind of Gentile occupation. So they declare victory. And Judas is honored with a title. Some of you all have probably heard it, Maccabee. As best as we know from Hebrew, this means hammer. So oftentimes people refer to him as the hammer. And this is what's referred to in history as the Maccabean Revolt. Now, Judas is actually going to himself have a dynasty. It's going to be referred to from this point forward until four years before Jesus is born. This is the Hasmonean dynasty. So what God has done by moving the Seleucids out, by giving Judas this victory, is there's more space and there's more time to get ready for Messiah. So let's look at that part of the story. So Judas and his band of brothers head up to Jerusalem. It's the capital. It's time to reclaim that. Some of the wind gets knocked out of their sails because we already talked about what had happened to the temple. It's been three years. The ruins of the temple, uh, there's weeds about three feet tall that are growing in what would have been the holy place. The statue is still on the altar. So their response, as only Job would do, is that they tear their clothes they put ashes over their heads, and they just kneel down in the dust, and they weep. They just weep. This is the house of God, or the living God. Look at its condition. And what I love so much about the story is, to Matt's point, instead of letting their circumstances and their emotions overwhelm them, this remnant does what we should all do, which is that they return to the words of God. And when was the last time And Matt told us that God has spoken a word? It's Malachi. So they turn to the words of the prophet Malachi, and they're reminded that God had said to Malachi and Malachi to the people, I'm angry with you. 
I'm angry with the Levites because you guys have been bringing me lame animals. The sacrifice at the temple had become compromised. In addition, the people are not demonstrating their faith in things like observing the Sabbath. So God says, because I'm angry with you, I'm going to hand you over to the Gentile nations, and they are going to rule over you until the time of Messiah. So Judah, the other Maccabeans, look at each other and say, then it's time. It's now. It's imminent Messiah's coming. So what do we do next? And what they read next in Malachi is from chapter 3, verse 1. I think we're going to put this up here. God says... I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord, the Messiah, that you are seeking is going to come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord. So the king is coming. What's the condition of his house? So they then say, we have to rededicate. We have to consecrate the temple and get ready for Messiah. So, of course, the first thing they do is they remove the statue off the bronze basin. And then they do all the other work to repair the building. When they go to rededicate, and I love this part of the story too, perfect timing, it is three years to the day since Antiochus had placed that statue on the altar. And they go in to rededicate the temple. Well, most of you all know that the only form of light within the temple is the menorah, the seven golden candle holder. And there's a requisite oil in order to light the menorah. And it's required that it be lit like our eternal flame. It's never to be out. So they go kind of digging through the rubble, and they only are able to find one jug of the requisite oil. And it's still got the seal from the former high priest. So it's been preserved. So they're able to go ahead and go forward with the dedication of the temple, but the Levites look at each other and say, we're going to have to take another leap of faith because we don't have enough oil for tomorrow. And as many of you all know, the tradition holds that for eight days straight, they return to the jug and there's sufficient oil to keep the menorah lit. And in the meantime, they're also able to resupply what they need for the menorah. And that is the story of Hanukkah. Right. And that... And the reason that's a wonderful story is because, because of their commitment to what the promises of God and what, prom, and what promises God had made to them. They go to Malachi, and they said, we have to get the temple ready, okay? And they did, and they waited. And some passed. They had to wait longer than that. They had, a, they had this deep faith right? that was bigger than them, that had a bigger picture, and waited almost 200 years. And then when Jesus, in John chapter 8 comes to the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Tents, okay, the, 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 the lighting structure of this menorah, Jesus is in plain sight of that, and he says this. He drops this on the people of Israel that have been waiting and looking. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but I will, ha but will have the light of life. Because of what right? Um, the Maccabeans had done and cleaned this up. And because of their preparation, because they knew the promises and they set up, Jesus walks up and says, we're here. It's, and then just a few chapters later, just a few weeks later, Jesus is again up in the temple. He's, he's on the colonnade and it is Hanukkah. Jesus is celebrating Hanukkah. And that's why the people are asking, they're feeling this might be the time 
chapter 10, verse 22, and then came the festival of dedication, that's the festival of Hanukkah, and in Jerusalem, and it was the wintertime, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking on Solomon's colonnade, and the Jews were there gathering around him and saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're Messiah, tell us plainly. And what they were really saying, are you like Judas Maccabee? Can we do to these Romans like what's coming to them? They're, the details of what they had their faith in were erroneous. But do, do you see how they use this festival, this feast of Hanukkah, to set their souls up for a promise being fulfilled? Chapter later, John chapter 11, Jesus is talking to Mary and Martha, and he says, I am the resurrection. And during those 400 years, the resurrection was becoming a primary place to put your faith, a promise of God. So the point is, the, the Christmas story, the real Christmas story, the historic Christmas story, it teaches us about real faith, a faith in the promises of God, not the ones you want, but the ones that are. And it means that you believe these things to be true and the conviction of these things to be true independent of your circumstances, your emotions. It, it causes you to broaden your horizon and realize it's, it's about what God is doing in the world and the promises of eternal justice and righteousness. It, it's, it's, it's realizing that we might have to wait longer than we have ever thought, that God does not have to answer our bell it doesn't have to be in my lifetime for it to be a promise kept. Well, you've heard a picture's worth a thousand words. I, I must tell you, in my business, sometimes there's a prop worth a thousand sermons. And when Carol was telling me about uh, her, her love for Hanukkah and she told me about her menorah, I went, oh, that's worth a thousand sermons. So there you go. You're good till, what, 2020? So, or sorry, there. <laughs> But Carol, I want you to tell people about your menorah, where it came from, what it's made out of, because it is a picture. It is, it is a simple expression of the way God works in human history. Thank you. So this is my advent. Um, you all can see it up here. And so I'll just kind of describe for you. I got this in Israel. That stone is Jerusalem stone. And I purchased this from a Jewish artisan on one of my last trips. Why this is so meaningful to me is because sandwiched between the marble, kind of looks like green opaque sort of stuff, that's Roman glass. When I had the conversation with the artisan, I just was taken aback. And he said, yeah, he said, we actually have a lot of fun with all of those ruins from the Romans. And it just struck me, I have to take this home with me, because every time I look at it, what I hear in my head is my Jewish friends in Israel saying, aha, we're back. And in the meantime, where are the Romans? Right. It's taken 2,000 years. And what Antiochus attempted to do, the Romans, in a sense, they accomplish it because it's going to be 70 A.D., and they're going to destroy the temple. Right. And they're, they're going to go even further than that. They're going to expel the Jews from the promised land. And some of us in this room were alive when they returned. We're living in that expectancy of when Christ is going to come as king. And that's why I love this menorah. I love it. I, I love it. it, it, it if, uh, the snarky side of me says, God always gets the last laugh. You bet on God, friends. It doesn't matter what the odds are. The game is fixed. Hamlet. 
you know, with, with, with the, the skull, you know, Alexander come, Alexander goes, right? Maybe, maybe the remains of Alexander is plugging the hole in this barrel. We call him Alexander the Great. Friends, pharaohs and, 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 and Hitler's and Nero's and what's, who's this guy? What's this guy's name? Antioch. And I can't remember his name. More puppets, more pawns, and he moves around the board. God has big plans. Here's our application for today. Be the remnant. Have times been any crazier? You know one of the reasons we teach the Bible here and don't spend very much time on current events is because we can't keep up with those. How to respond to the latest crazy. But the Bible says there's an anchor, there's a rock, there's a ballast, there's a certainty, there's a promise. You cling to that, you'll be just fine. Be the remnant. Be Hannah. Be a son of Hannah. Be a person that says, it doesn't matter what the culture does around me, I will follow what God calls me to do. I will serve him and serve him alone. I don't care how foolish I look. I don't, know how much, I don't care how much it costs me. He will choose when to take my life or whether to prolong it. I will choose to live for him. Christmas, the real Christmas faith, the one that leads up to the first Christmas, is our faith leading for his second coming. Friends, choose to live well for the glory of God. Choose to even die well for the glory of God. That's what our time is today. I want you to come back next week. There's still more to learn, okay? Deal? deal. Okay. <laughs> Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I ask that you would help us and see the, the vastness of your plan and how small a part we have to play in it so that we could enjoy that small part. That we might see that uh, Hitler's come and go and so do Pharaoh's and Nero's. And they're, they, they all try to, try to thwart your plan and look at them. The ruin they leave behind. They will build a menorah out of the remains of your thousand-year rule. Lord Jesus, let that, let that idea of the transcendent power and the plan, your sovereign will for all of mankind, be the, th- be the point of the focus of our faith. That we might live courageously, that we would live holy lives, living by faith with the assurance of things we hope for, with the conviction of things that we haven't seen but we know are real. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about grace, visit our website at grace360.org.